With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, The History of Egypt. This is episode 65b, Two Tales of Hatshepsut, a narrative of the Queen's Punt expedition and her Speos Artemidos inscription. Text by James Henry Breasted from his 1906 work Ancient Records of Egypt, Volume 2, and from a translation by James Allen in his article The Speos Artemidos Inscription of Hatshepsut. This episode is both a narrative and an artistic description, because the Punt expedition in particular was recorded both in writing and in visuals. I've done my best to do the artwork justice, but words can only get me so far. There are images going along with the episode, which you will find at EgyptianHistoryPodcast.com. There is also a special question put forth by our listener Brian Lovely, asking about a certain very cool aspect of the Punt narrative's content. Stick around at the end of the episode for that discussion. With that in mind, on with the show. Part 1. The Punt Expedition Let me set the scene. We are standing in a desert valley in the noonday sun. It is hot and dusty but we do not feel it so terribly. There is a breeze from the east, where the Nile River cools the air and relieves some heat. And there is shade, thanks to the fact this valley plays host to a beautiful, wonderful orchard. Rows of trees run either side of you in ordered plantings, flanking a pathway that leads up towards the temple, the temple that is the reason for our visit. Ahead of us is a causeway, 70 metres long or 141 feet. We ascend, our sandals padding on the limestone, heading for the doorway. Our first goal is a courtyard, hidden behind the facade of the temple, and hidden away from the general public. We are lucky to be here. This is an area usually accessible only to the wealthy, those who hold status in the government. You and I are tourists. Lucky tourists, but tourists nonetheless. As we leave this causeway and enter the temple, we pass a row of statues built up against pillars of the facade. These enormous statues depict Osiris, lord of the underworld, the eternal king of the hereafter. A suitable guardian for a temple dedicated to a mortuary cult. The temple we enter is built to sustain the Ka, the eternal spirit and livelihood of our patroness, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Hatshepsut. Thus, Osiris guards her cult, and these statues bear the smiling face of the queen, as if she herself were the great god. Inside the temple, there is a courtyard. Ringing this courtyard on the stone walls are the images which we are here to view. They are arranged geographically, by which I mean the scenes that take place in Egypt are on the north side, and the scenes that take place in Punt are in the south, just like their real-life counterparts. The scenes are drawn in the classical Egyptian style, 
neat rows stacked three high convey the narrative, while the giant figure of the Queen King Hatshepsut towers over all, surveying her accomplishments. First, we face to the north, to the Egyptian scenes. The scene takes place at the seaside, where the Queen's expedition is preparing to launch for their journey to Punt. They have assembled five great ships, enormous sea-going vessels of the kind rarely seen except on royal expeditions. Enormous things, but very clever vessels too. They have been built in jigsaw in the Nile Valley, then disassembled, carried overland to the coast of the Red Sea, and rebuilt for the voyage. The sailors and carpenters have done their work well, and the ships are now ready to go. But first, a sacrifice. No expedition could be launched before the proper sacrifices were made. This was a big undertaking, with life-or-death consequences for any cut corners. So the sailors made their offerings to the relevant gods. Quote, An offering which Her Majesty, life, prosperity, health, gives to Hathor, the mistress of Punt, that she may bring the wind. Ah, now that is important. If Hathor is the mistress of Punt, visiting this land is to visit her domain, a place in which she reigns supreme, and in which all must take care for her will. To do otherwise is to risk great peril, so it had better go well. Fortunately, the sacrifice is proper, and as the sailors make ready, the trade winds are blowing healthily. It is September when they launch, the traditional period for ships heading southward on the Red Sea. We know from later texts, like the circumnavigation of the Red Sea and Indian Ocean by a Greek writer, that the trade winds blew best around September. Ships leaving at that time could look for a good southerly to fill their sails, pushing them southward on a swift voyage. The sacrifices have done their work, for the trade winds are blowing full. It is time for the Egyptians to cast off, to set out into the Red Sea, and to begin their adventure. Quote, Sailing in the Red Sea, beginning the good way to the God's land, i.e. the limits of the known world. Journeying in peace to the land of Punt by the army of the Lord of the Two Lands, which was done according to the command of Amun, Lord of Thebes. This journey is done in order to bring for Amun the marvels of every country, because he so much loves the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Ma'at Kare Hatshepsut. The artists making the punt reliefs obviously did not think much of the journey itself, for they omitted the sailing trip and jumped straight to the destination. When we next meet the sailors and the army, they have arrived in punt itself. The ships are pulled up on the coast, possibly a river estuary, and the soldiers have disembarked, along with Hatshepsut's envoy. They are grateful to arrive safely, and they immediately offer thanks to the goddess Hathor for their survival. Quote, the arrival of the king's messenger in the god's land, together with the army which is behind him. They are grateful to arrive safely, and they immediately offer thanks to the goddess Hathor for their survival. Quote, the arrival of the king's messenger in the god's land, together with the army which is behind him. They have been dispatched with every good thing from the court, for Hathor, the mistress of Punt, for the sake of the life, prosperity, and health of her majesty. The Egyptians made their offerings to the goddess for the safe arrival, and the royal envoy proclaimed the journey a success. With the ships unloading their goods, the Egyptians were now ready for the real mission. They were here to meet the locals, the Puntites, and engage them in conversation, or diplomacy, or war, whichever happened first. The scenes now jump to the key moment, when Puntite met Egyptian, 
and Hatshepsut's envoy came face to face with the ruler of the ancient land which he now visited. Before the Egyptians stands a man, a woman, a child, and a donkey. Behind this small assemblage is a forest of trees in which strange, thatched huts stand on stilts. This is the land of Punt and the village of the Puntite chief, who now comes before the Egyptians with his family. Quote, the coming of the chiefs of Punt, doing obeisance with bowed head to receive this army of the king. They give praise to the Lord of Gods, Amun-Ra. They say as they pray for peace, Why have you come hither unto this land? End quote. Well, that's a bit of a cold opening. No fussing about with these people, just, why are you here? If nothing else, they seem to be a direct folk. The Egyptian envoy has no answer either, or at least, no answer that has been recorded. Instead, the artists carving the scene skipped over the obvious stuff, what the Egyptians said, which would have been fairly formulaic greetings. Instead, they focused on the unusual stuff. They were interested in representing the Puttites in all their foreignness, not in repeating things that, to the educated Egyptian who is permitted to view these images, were probably standard conventions. So, who were the Puntites? The chief of the land, the chief who now came before the Egyptians, was named Parahu. Physically, he was, well, he was East African. Artistically, he was not particularly remarkable. He stands in the classic Egyptian male stance, feet apart, left arm forward, right arm crossed over his chest, and holding a small rod or seal to indicate his office. Parahu extends his left hand and says to the envoys, Did you come down upon the ways of heaven? Or did you sail upon the waters, upon the seas of God's land? Have you trodden the way of Ra? And as for the king of Egypt, is there any way to reach his majesty, so that we may live by the breath he gives? These seem like pretty reasonable inquiries, but they are completely shaped by the Egyptian worldview. In other words, they're partly propagandistic. The notion that Parahu immediately asks for knowledge of Hatshepsut, so that he might pay homage to her, is little more than a happy fiction. If that's actually what he said, I'll eat my hat. Behind Parahu stands his wife, the Princess Eti. Eti is notable, not for anything she does, but for her obesity a physical trait which the Egyptian artists recorded faithfully and with great fascination. They depicted E.T. in meticulous detail, with heavy folds of flesh and a distorted physical posture. If you want to hear more, we went into great detail about E.T. and her context in episode 63. Check it out. So, Parahu has greeted the Egyptians, inquiring of their origins. Now it was time for the Egyptian response. The Egyptian envoy opened formal negotiations by saying, quote, There was an offering to the Puntites of bread, beer, wine, meat, and fruit, everything that is found in Egypt, according to that which had been commanded in the court of Hatshepsut, life, prosperity, health. In other words, the Egyptians gave a gift of their products to the Puntites to display their good intentions. Gift-giving in Egypt and the ancient Near East was a fundamental part of ancient diplomacy and the ancient economy. In return for the Egyptians' gift, the Puntites offered their own products. With this ceremony complete, the Egyptians pitched their tents on the seashore, and a trade could begin. Once again, the Egyptian artists jump ahead to the part that they thought was the most interesting. In this case, they skip ahead to the Egyptians loading up their ships, with the items that the Puntites have brought for trade. Which is a shame, 
because we miss a detailed record of the interactions between Egyptians and Puntite chieftains. We miss the opportunity to see them feasting together or exchanging their culture. In other words, we miss the entire diplomatic angle of the Punt expedition. Instead, we get an economic record, and a propagandistic one. It's a shame, and a real weak spot in what is otherwise a wonderful historical narrative. But c'est la vie. Anyways, the Egyptians received the offerings of the Puntites and began to load up their ships. When we see them next, they are piling it all up. Two of their ships are laden with myrrh trees, those trees which would be planted in the orchard outside of the temple, and with sacks of myrrh as well. Ancient myrrh was a type of resin or gum. It is fragrant and commonly used as a perfume. For the Egyptians, myrrh was a perfect item to use in worship. It could be melted slightly and used to anoint statues of gods. It could also be used as an expensive perfume, and thus became recognized as an elite commodity. For the Egyptians, myrrh was always heavily associated with punt. It even shows up in stories like the story of the shipwrecked sailor of Dynasty Twelve, where the great serpent who lives on an island in an ocean says to the sailor, I am the lord of punt, and myrrh is my very own. So yeah, it's a prestigious item. As I look at the Egyptians loading up the sacks of myrrh and myrrh trees onto their ships, I am reminded of a story from the 6th century AD when the Roman Empire literally stole the secret of silk production from the Chinese. You see, silk was an item of high prestige, much like myrrh, and as the final stop on the burgeoning silk road, the emperors of Constantinople were rather fond of it. They were so fond of it, and so frustrated by its cost and rarity, that the Emperor Justinian actually organized a project that can only be described as industrial epicionage. Justinian sent two monks eastward on a mission of spreading the Christian faith, but their secret agenda was to learn where silk came from, how it was produced, and to obtain the means of production for their emperor. When the monks returned a couple of years later, they brought with them a valuable treasure, the elusive silkworms of China. Within a few short years, the Romans of Constantinople were manufacturing their own silk, and the Chinese monopoly was broken. As I look at the Egyptians and the myrrh trees they obtained from the Puntites, I am reminded of that story. Essentially, the Egyptians were breaking a Puntite monopoly on myrrh production, and bringing home the means of production for themselves. I think the Puntites got the short end of that stick. The Egyptians could now look forward to a homegrown industry, but the people of Punt lost some of their economic uniqueness. Perhaps it's not surprising that, after the New Kingdom and the reign of Ramesses III, the land of Punt slowly faded into the background. As Egyptian concerns shifted, this mysterious land simply became less and less valuable. So anyway, the Egyptians are loading up their ships with myrrh, and also with other items. There are bundles of good wood, very important because Egypt does not produce its own. There are also piles of ivory from African elephants. Funnily enough, to the ancients, ivory was valuable, but not particularly exotic. Egyptians used it for carving combs, bracelets, furniture legs, fish hooks, statuettes, knife handles, spoons, gaming pieces, writing tablets, and much more. A pretty wide range of products, essentially, both prestigious and utilitarian. So when the Egyptians loaded ivory onto their ships, they probably weren't quite as careful as with the myrrh or lumber. Ivory was a lot more common. In fact, the scene we are looking at has an amusing caption, where one of the Egyptian overseers shouts at his workmen, 
Look to your feet, men. The load is heavy. Basically, Oi, watch what you're doing. I'm not sure why I put a strange accent on that, but there we go. Below this scene, the Egyptian scribes have recorded the goods as follows. Quote, The loading of the ships, very heavily, with marvels of the country of Punt. There are fragrant woods of the god's land, heaps of myrrh resin, fresh myrrh trees, ebony, ivory, gold, incense, and cosmetics. There are also animals, apes, monkeys, dogs, skins of the panther, and there are Puntite servants, natives and their children. Never was the like of this done before for any king since the beginning. End quote. Now that is a shopping list. Ebony, gold, apes, slaves, and panther skins. Basically, the Egyptians went shopping for everything that a palace or temple could possibly need for its operations. Panther skins for the high priests, apes and monkeys to adorn royal gardens, gold for statues, servants to work in palaces and temples. The Egyptian expedition can only be described as a grand shopping spree for the royal palace and temple economy. With their shopping completed, the Egyptians prepared to depart. Once again, the artists skip this phase, and so we move immediately back to Egypt and the city of Thebes. In these scenes, the army has arrived back at Hatshepsut's capital, having journeyed away from Punt, sailed back up the Red Sea coast, disembarked at their port, disassembled their ships, marched overland, reassembled the ships on the Nile, and returned to their hometown. We hear almost none of this, and the journey is simply described as a sailing, arriving in peace, journeying to Thebes with joy of heart by the army of the Lord of the Two Lands. End quote. That's a lot to skip, but Hatshepsut wanted to get to the good stuff. The next phase of the story is titled The Presentation of the Tribute to the Queen, Hatshepsut, by the Chieftains of Punt, of Irem, and of Nemeu. As you can guess, this is a diplomatic affair, and a party of some magnificence. At the right of the scene are the cartouches of Ma'at Ka-Re Hatshepsut, so that we know who is responsible for all this. Before these cartouches, two lines of men approach the queen, carrying gifts. These are the servants, but they carry goods for the men kneeling at their head. Before the servants kneel four lines of chieftains, two lines of chieftains from Punt, one line of chieftains from a land called Irem, and one line from a land called Nemeu. We'll get to who these guys all are in a moment. The text which accompanies the scene is a litany of praise to the queen through the medium of foreign subservience. To glorify Hatshepsut, these foreign chieftains kneel and say, Kissing the earth to Usaret Kau, which is the Horus name of Hatshepsut, by the chieftains of Punt, the Nubian savages of Kenthen-Nefer, of every country. They are doing obeisance with bowed head, bearing their tribute to the place where her majesty is. They say to her, Hail to thee, king of Egypt, the female Ra, who shines like the sun. Thy name reaches as far as the circuit of heaven. The fame of Ma'at Kare Hatshepsut encircles even the sea. The affair seems a bit choreographed, as you'd expect. It's a grand diplomatic affair, right? Gotta make sure that it all goes properly. Everyone smile, look at the cameras, or the scribes, and say your lines, just like you rehearsed. Everyone, look happy. It reminds me of the photo day in primary school, where you tried to pretend that you didn't want to be anywhere else but school. Yeah. You're probably wondering who all these people are, right? I thought we were just dealing with Punt. 
What are all these Nubians and stuff doing here? Well, we're not entirely sure, I'm afraid. Egyptian geographies are still a bit hazy for many historians. There are a lot of theories about where these people come from, but mostly we have to guess. Part of the reason for that is that these chieftains of places like Irem and Nemeu come from regions that were non-literate. So, as much as these people probably did belong to specific regions, we have no record of them outside the Egyptian guise. And the Egyptians weren't exactly specific. They didn't say, Irem is located at the 39th parallel, 20 degrees east, 20 degrees west, that kind of thing. The best guess, I think, is that the chieftains paying homage is actually a sort of collage of different events that happened at various times. What do I mean? Well, maybe envoys from other countries visited Thebes to do homage to several points during Hatshepsut's rule. It makes sense, right? You have a new king on the throne, you want to stay on Egypt's good side, so send a dignitary. Such events probably happened more frequently than we realise. If that's the case, then perhaps this scene is not really one event that happened at one time, but several events all combined together. Basically, while the Puntites certainly made their offerings, chieftains of other countries might have made offerings at other times. Hatshepsut simply cut out the fluff and put it all together into one fabulous sequence, making herself look grander as a result. It was a wonderful spectacle, or spectacles, and the queen was right to put it on her walls. But still, it's a bit of a historical fudging. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We now move to a scene where the queen offers the gifts of Punt to her divine father, Amun-Ra. The queen stands on the left, with rows of goods and products arrayed in front of her. The text says, The presentation of the marvels of Punt, the treasures of the god's land, together with the gifts of the southern countries, to Amun, lord of Thebes, who presides over Karnak, for the sake of the life, prosperity, and health of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Ma'at Kare Hatshepsut. May she live, and her heart be joyful. May she rule the two lands like Ray forever. The queen now offers all of those items that we listed before. Myrrh, gold, ebony, ivory, etc. Animals and captives. All the good things obtainable from Egypt's southern empire. The empire over Nubia and the trade lands of Punt. As you can imagine, this was a huge pile of things, beyond easy reckoning. Fortunately, the scribes recorded it meticulously, and Hatshepsut ordered that the accounting be put into the scenes. Men scoop up the myrrh and measure it, while scribes take the tally, and the caption says, rather grandiosely, Recording in writing, reckoning the numbers, summing up in millions, in hundreds of thousands, in tens of thousands, thousands and hundreds. The reception of the marvels of Punt for Amun-Ra, Lord of Thieves, Lord of Heaven. Talk about labouring the point, eh? As if that were not enough, there is then a scene where the gods themselves make a reckoning. Standing before a huge pair of scales piled with gold and, oddly enough, cows, Horus and Sefket, the goddess of letters, watch the measuring. The caption says, quote, The balances of Thoth, 
which the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Ma'at Kare, made for her father Amun, are accurate and true. They are made in order to weigh the silver, gold, lapis lazuli, and every splendid costly stone, for the life, prosperity, and health of her majesty. The weighing of the gold and the electrum, the impost, which is a tax, of the southern countries, summing up in millions, reception of the marvels of the south, for Amun, the lord of Thebes. With the measuring proceeding smoothly, and this must have taken quite a while, Hatshepsut now appears to make her formal announcement of the success of the expedition. She does this before Amun. Hatshepsut stands on the left, her staff of office in hand, while Amun sits on his throne at the right. Behind the queen, the sacred shrine of Amun is carried by priests, accompanied by a surprising inclusion, none other than Hatshepsut's young co-ruler, Tatmos III. Surprise! I bet you forgot about him, didn't you? Well, he's still around, and he shows up in Hatshepsut's temple periodically. About one-third of the scenes feature Tutmos III, either accompanying his aunt, or doing something regal on his own, usually making offerings to the gods. Why is he even here, though? Well, Hatshepsut did not want to ignore the person who was, technically, the first king of Upper and Lower Egypt. She still used his regnal dates, and his reign had begun before hers, no matter how she spun it. So, she did the politic thing again, and included Tutmos even in scenes where, ideally, she would be glorifying herself. So Hatshepsut and Tutmos III stand before Amun-Ra to announce the success of the Punt expedition. Between the kings and the god stand columns of text which form a long narrative of the so-called Oracle of the Great God, an oracle which started the whole expedition itself, and which gave the event its legitimacy. The oracle is pretty long and quite arcane. I'll give you a selection. Quote, the majesty of the court, i.e. Hatshepsut, made supplication at the steps of the lord of the gods. Then a command was heard from the great throne, an oracle of Amun himself. The oracle said, I will lead an army on water and on land to bring marvels from the gods' land, for this god, Hatshepsut, for the fashioner of her beauty. It was done according to all that the majesty of this revered god commanded. Then Amun said, Welcome, my sweet daughter, my favourite, Hatshepsut, who makes my beautiful monuments. Thou art the king, taking possession of the two lands. Thou satisfies my heart at all times. I have given thee all life and satisfaction all stability, all health, all joy, from me. I have given thee all lands and all countries. I have given to thee all of Punt, as far as the lands of the gods. The marvels brought from Punt under thy fathers were brought from one to another, and since the time of the ancestors of the kings of Upper Egypt, who were of olden days, no one trod the myrrh terraces any more, and the people knew it not. But I will cause thy army to tread them, and I have led them on water and on land. End quote. Amun-Ra, it is known, is the source of all success. Without his blessing, no king prospers and no person thrives. It is therefore only fitting that Hatshepsut and Tutmos III should give such credit to the god to put their riches before him and to make public proclamations of his help. Anything less would be quite disrespectful. With the oracle reported, we now reach the final inscription of the Punt expedition. Here, Queen Hatshepsut sits on her throne, and before her are the figures of three noblemen whose names are now lost. The Queen brings these men forth as representatives of her court, and makes a speech that might well be a recounting 
of her actual historical words. Obviously, I am not a woman, and I decided that reading Hatshepsut myself would be a bit odd. So, please welcome Hatshepsut. I shine forever in your faces through that which my father, Amun, has desired. Truly, it was very much my desire to do this, that I should make great the one who created me, and, in giving that to my father, that I should make splendid for him all his offerings. I am doing as the great one Osiris did to the Lord of Eternity, Amun-Re. I am adding increase to that which was done before. I will cause it to be said to posterity, how beautiful is she through whom this has happened, because I have been so very excellent to him, and the heart of my heart has been replete with that which is due to him. I am his splendor on high and in the netherworld. I have entered into the qualities of the august God, and he hath opened the ways for me. I have given a command, a command of my majesty, commanding to send to the myrrh terraces of Punt, so that the offerings of the one who made me, Amun, should be made splendid, that the ointment or myrrh should be increased in our house. There was a decree of my majesty to explore his ways for him, to learn his circuit, to open his highways according to the command of my father, Amun. This was done! Trees were picked up in the god's land and set down in the soil of Egypt. They were brought bearing myrrh therein to give ointment for the divine limbs, an offering which I owed to the lord of the gods. I will now cause you to know that which is commanded of me, that I have hearkened to my father and is commanding me to establish for him a punt in his house. This was done in order to endow the offerings which I owed. I was not neglectful of the things which Amun needed. He desired me as his favourite, and I know all that he loves. I have made for him a punt in his garden, just as he commanded me. The garden is large for him, and he walks abroad in it. Hathor, the mistress of myrrh, has opened her two arms to thee, filled with myrrh resin. Hatshepsut here is saying that the primary focus of the expedition, the reason for its occurrence, was to obtain nothing less than that fabulous myrrh. Well, it's not hard to see how that might really well be the case. The special attention given to myrrh in the art and the texts, and the fact that the expedition actually obtained myrrh trees, indicates this product was of supreme importance at the time. Maybe not quite a life or death thing, but symbolically, it was worth its weight in gold and then some. The text of Hatshepsut's Punt expedition ends with the conclusion of her speech. While this might not have been the end of the actual festivities in real life, it is the end point at which Hatshepsut decided that her account had been completed successfully. In terms of sheer historical interest, the Punt expedition is right up there among the greatest texts of Egyptian history. Historians have been picking over them ever since they were first discovered in the 1800s. There's not a lot to say that I can add to this narrative, which wouldn't go into academic detail, but suffice to say that the Punt expedition is a truly remarkable encapsulation of a single historical event. Normally when Egyptian kings record moments like this, they tend to do so with so much hyperbole that you don't really get a sense of what the actual event itself was. But around the time of Hatshepsut, the Egyptians were slowly changing in their attitudes. 
they were beginning to take a greater and greater stylistic attention towards historical detail. What do I mean by this? What I mean is that they were starting to use less and less symbolism and start to incorporate more and more straightforward narratives. This was really going to culminate over the coming decades when kings like Tutmos III put what can only be described as blow-by-blow accounts of campaigns onto their temples. Eventually, it would culminate in the great texts like the Kadesh narrative of Ramesses II. The Punt expedition is a good example of this process underway. It's not perfect, and it still includes a lot of exaggeration and symbolism. But, as far as Egyptian texts go, it's starting to move towards something like what we might call a conventional history. With that being said, we're now going to move to part 2, where Hatshepsut basically takes historical narrative and reverses it, exaggerating it again to the nth degree. Part 2, the Speos Artemidos inscription. The Speos Artemidos inscription is called this because it is located in a temple called the Speos Artemidos. The Speos Artemidos, or Grotto of Artemis, is a temple located in Middle Egypt. It is dedicated to the goddess Paket, and Hatshepsut built the temple in the middle of her reign around year 16. To learn more about the temple and its context, I recommend jumping back to episode 65, where I laid out the facts in more detail. The text of the Speos Artemidos inscription is read entirely by Hatshepsut as one single long speech. I have not included any commentary because it is relatively straightforward and speaks for itself. So, please welcome once again Queen Hatshepsut. The Living One, Horus powerful of life force, the two ladies fresh of years, gold falcon, divine of appearance, the young god, lord of the two lands, king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Ma'atkare, the son of Re, lord of appearance. Hatshepsut, who is united with Amun, given life like the sun forever, she whose titles have been set and remain like the sky, setting up the annals of her diligence. My divine mind is looking towards posterity, the king's heart has thought of eternal continuity because of the utterance of he who parts the Ished tree, Amun, the lord of millions, and I have magnified the order he has desired. For it is known to me that the king lives on this order. It is my bread, and it is of its due that I drink. I was in one body with him, and he has raised me to make the awe of him powerful in this land. I am one whom Atum Kepri, the god who made that which exists, made knowledgeable. I am one whom the sun has fated, as it was established for him. My impressiveness making foreign lands bow down, the black land and the red land under terror of me. Punt has swollen forth for me upon all its estates. Its trees are bearing fresh myrrh. The roads that were once blocked in both directions are now trodden freely. My troops, which were unequipped, have finery since my appearance as king. Concerning the temples which I have restored... The temple of the mistress of Cusay, which had completely fallen into dissolution, I hallowed it, 
built it anew, fashioning its leading serpent of gold in order to defend its town in the processional bark. Furthermore, great goddess Paket, who roams the desert wadis, who is resident in the eastern desert, was seeking the rainstorm's paths since there was no libation service that fetched water for her. I have made her enclosure as that which this goddess intended for her ennead. The door leaves are made of acacia inlaid with bronze in order that they might be in it. Her calendar of festival offerings is in effect. The lay priests are learning of its timing. The towns of her and Hermopolis were impoverished of provisions. I have consecrated the sacred precincts of their towns, established them as a visitable place. Those who were poor now take from the storehouses. Since great Thoth, who came from the sun, has been revealing this direction to me, I have consecrated to him an altar in silver and gold, along with the chests of cloth, every vessel set in its proper place. This was done by me because the one authorized to see Thoth's revealings, the leader of Artem's two Enneads, did not know how to do it. There being no knowledge in his house, the gods' fathers were empty-headed, and there was no son who learned from his father. I have constructed his great temple of white Tura limestone, its gateways made of alabaster of Hatnub, the door leaves of bronze of Asia, the reliefs on them in electrum. I have magnified the incarnation of this god with the double festival of Nehebkau and the festival of Thoth, which I set for him anew. I have multiplied the god's offerings for him more than what was before by my acting for the Ogdoad. For Knum in his forms and for Heket, Renanet, Meshkenet, united to build my body, for Nemtawi, Nebetka, she of whom it is said that the sky and earth are hers, and he in the mummy wrappings in Hebenu. If you're having trouble keeping up with the names of all these gods, don't worry about it. Most of the beings whom Hatshepsut is talking about are minor deities associated with different localities and regions of Egypt. Yeah, there are references to gods like Kanum, a cosmic creator, or Hathor or Osiris, but overall, Hatshepsut was dealing very much with local cults. This was a good way to spread her name into the provinces, by reviving local temples and making sure that they had enough supplies to make their daily offerings. This was a good way to make sure that people knew who the benefactor of the country truly was. Naturally, Hatshepsut did not only tell us about the cults she revived, but about the celebrations which people gave in her honour. The relevant towns are in a festival of witnessing to me with the words unknown, unknown. The enclosure walls are in foundation, for I have established them and made them festive, giving the houses to their owners. Every god says to himself, one who will achieve eternal continuity has come, whom Amun has caused to appear as king of eternity on Horus's throne. So listen, all you elite and you multitude of commoners. I have done this by the plan of my mind. I do not sleep forgetting, but have made form that which was ruined. I have raised up what was dismembered, beginning from the time when the Asiatics were in Avaris, with vagrants in their midst. Toppling that which had been made, they ruled without the sun, and he did not act, down to my own Uraeus incarnation.
Now I am set on the sun's thrones, having been foretold as one born to take possession. I am come as Horus, the sole Uraeus, spitting fire at my enemies. I have banished the gods' abomination, the earth removing their footprints. This is the system of the father of my fathers, the sun god, who now comes at his dates. Damage will not happen again, for Amun has decreed that my decree remain like the mountains. When the sun disk shines, it will spread rays over the titles of my incarnation, and my falcon will be high on the top of the Serek for the course of eternity. Utterance of the King of Upper and Lower Egypt, Ma'at Kare, the son of Re, Hatshepsut. Well, there you have it, folks. The Speos Artemidos inscription of Hatshepsut and the text of the Great Punt Expedition. I hope you've enjoyed these stories and will join us soon for episode 66, in which we recount the later years of Hatshepsut and the transition between her reign and that of her young co-ruler, Tatmos III. But stick around, because it's question time. Now, a question from my listener, Brian Lovely. Brian says... I couldn't help noticing the fish beneath all the ships in the Punt expedition. Clearly they depicted actual species instead of generic fish. I see a squid, a shrimp, a lobster, several different flatfish, and what is probably some kind of ray. I have to wonder, is this a depiction of an assortment of known fish, or all the fish we saw on the way to Punt? Thanks Brian for your question. I've done some research, and I think I have an answer for you. Short answer. The fish you see in the punt reliefs all come from the Red Sea and Indian Ocean, so they are probably the fish that the sailors themselves saw on the expedition. Hatshepsut's sailors would have been catching fish along the way as part of their food source, and it's entirely possible that as they did so they began to encounter ones that they weren't familiar with. It seems that someone among their number had a deft hand with artistry and began to make copies of them. We know that Egyptian scribes were quite skilled at basic sketching because we have evidence from later periods to show this. In the 1960s, scholars gathered together a whole bunch of ichthyologists, which means fish experts, in order to examine these fish. They were trying to determine whether they came exclusively from one ocean or geographic region, or whether they were a sort of composite of types that the Egyptian knew. So, basically, your question. The result was that the fish and crustaceans and turtles seen on the punt reliefs are all based in the Red Sea and Indian Ocean. Remember that back then there was no canal between the Red Sea and the Mediterranean as there is today. So, historically, the two regions were separate in their fauna. The items you see on the punt reliefs all come from the Red Sea and Indian Ocean, so they must have been documented by the sailors working on those ships. I hope this answers your question satisfactorily. If not, let me know, and we'll go into greater detail. And now, we end our episode. My special thanks to Anya Banerjee, who plays Hatshepsut. If you like, stick around for a few outtakes from our recording, in which Anya tries on a few different accents for the Queen, and we see what Hatshepsut might have sounded like if she were from Brooklyn, or Indian, or a bunch of others. Alright, so, do you want me to try? Okay, so... Damage will not happen again, for Amun has decreed that my decree remain like the mountains. 
When the sun disk shines, it will spread rays over the titles of my incarnation, and my falcon will be high on the top of the Seric of the course of eternity. <laughs> Utterance of the king of Upper and Lower Egypt, Ma'akare, the son of Ray Hutshepsut. Got my Irish accent? My divine mind is looking towards posterity. The king's heart has thought of eternal continuity because of the utterance of he who parts the Ishid tree, Amun, the lord of millions, and I have magnified the order he has desired. For it is known to me that the king lives on his order. It is my bread and it is of its due that I drink. I was in one body with him and he has raised me to make the awe of him powerful in this land. I am one whom Atum Kepri, the god who made that which exists, made knowledgeable. I am one whom the sun has fated, as it was established for him. The shores are united under my supervision, the black land and the red land under terror of me, my impressiveness making foreign lands bow down. Punt has swollen forth for me upon all its estates. Its trees are barren, fresh myrrh. The roads that were once blocked in both directions are now trodden freely. My troops, which were unequipped, have finery since my appearance as king. The temple of the mistress of Cusay, which had completely fallen into disillusion, I hallowed it, built it anew. Fashioning its leaden serpent of gold in order to defend its town in the processional bark. Furthermore, great goddess Packet, who roams the desert wadis, who is resident in the eastern desert, was seeking the rainstorm paths since there was no libation service that fetched water for her. <laughs> Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.